I'm your host, Kira Deneen, and today our topic is the future of pediatric genetics. So we have lots of questions to answer about this. Our guests are Dr. Jerry Vokley and Dr. Stephen Kingsmore. They are going to be providing us expertise in this area of pediatric genetics. Quick overview of the session. We're going to be starting with an interview with our two panelists here, and then we're going to be taking your audience questions. So feel free to ask questions throughout the session. We'll get to those at the end. You can use the question and answer box, the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom call if you're watching this through Zoom, and we'll be sure to get to those at the end of the session. And a quick note about Phenotips, they are the world's first genomic health record system. They have software and services that ease genetic professionals' workflow, tools like pedigree builders, standardized symptom capture, and diagnostic insights. As many of us know that work in genetics, electronic health records are not built for genetics. So Phenotips helps to fill in the gaps by providing complete suite for genomic medicine. And in light of the pandemic, Phenotips is sponsoring this Phenotips speaker series so that we can connect with individuals throughout the world to come together to talk about genetic topics and issues within our profession. Again, I'm Kira Deneen, I'm the host of this webinar. I also host DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast. We won the best 2020 science and medicine podcast award last year. And over the last nine years, we've produced 150 episodes. So if you enjoy our conversation today, be sure to check out our other conversations on there. And I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor. Um, so Dr. Kingsmore and Dr. Vogley, I would love for you to introduce yourself, tell the audience a little bit about your background. Stephen, go ahead. Okay, thanks, Jerry. Uh, I'm Stephen Kingsmore. I'm the president and CEO of Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. I've been here for six years. We are part of Rady Children's Hospital, which is one of the largest children's hospitals in the US, and we're located in San Diego. So we're a new research institute, and our focus is exclusively on uh, changing pediatric care by introducing genome information as part and parcel of that care. And we not only have a local focus in San Diego, we actually provide uh, genome sequencing services to about 70 children's hospitals uh, around the US. Including here in Pittsburgh. And thank you, Stephen. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm Jerry Vockley. I'm, I'm the um, Cleveland Family Endowed Professor of, for uh, Pediatric Research at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and I hold a joint appointment as Professor of Human Genetics in the Graduate School of Public Health. I uh, serve as the uh, Chief of Genetic and Genomic Medicine for the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh uh, and its uh, Director for Rare Disease Therapy. Um, I see patients, I do research in the laboratory, and I do a lot of clinical research. So I come at genetics uh, really from a, a full uh, focus uh, across the spectrum of, uh, of, of um, where, where, I, where I think we've been and where I hope we're going. <clears throat> yeah, thank you so much. Great intro. And I think today we're going to be talking a lot about what is happening right now in pediatric genetics, but also looking at the future, as you just said, Dr. Vakli. Um, I thought we could start out with laying the foundation on what a first consult is in pediatric genetics and what that workflow is like in that first session. Um, Dr. Kingsmore, did you want to start out just sharing what that first consult looks like for an average pediatric genetics visit? I would not, actually. The last time I saw a patient in a first consultation was 1997. 
So, so it would I'm be a historical let, context. I'm going to let Jerry do this one. I'll 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 take that I'll take that rebound and uh, and, and go back up to the hoop. Um, uh, it it is uh, it's a mixed bag. So you know genetics uh, uh, has has a tradition of being a diagnostic uh, discipline, and we also are often viewed as, as sort of the diagnosticians of last resort. So many patients have come to us from a a, a diagnostic journey that's that that is 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 long in the process. Um, the, that's, that's changed a little bit. And I think we'll get into that as, as, as the hour goes on. Um, but the, but the, but the, the, I think the context of the first, uh, evaluation probably hasn't changed all that much. It really is a traditional medical evaluation. That is, you do a history and a physical and when all, uh, uh, and, and, and you use that, uh, to direct your testing. Um, the, the the difference is that our physical is 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 more than vision, hearing, listen to your lungs, listen to your heart. Um, it's measure your eyes. It's 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 check the rotation of your ears. So it's 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 all of the dysmorphology things uh, that 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 we learn in our in our training um, that that help that help focus on on the physical disorders or the disorders I should say that have physical manifestations that might be recognizable the things we call syndromes um, and then uh, also uh, to to think about um, the uh, broad categories of disease that have um, um, much, much more um, broad uh, uh, phenotypes so something like developmental delay or intellectual disability, failure to thrive, uh, which can include many of those genetic syndromes that we talked about, but also things like inborn errors of metabolism. So we're also doing uh, genetic, uh, we're, we're doing, we're doing um, uh, lab testing that focuses on um, metabolite uh, analysis, genetic analysis, um, and, and, then, and then the piece that I purposely saved for last um, is, is, is the one that, that probably distinguishes us as much as anything, and that's our pedigree analysis or our family history. Um, and and um, uh, the, 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 the key to, 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 to this component um, is, is, is really our, our collaborative efforts with our genetic counselor uh, colleagues. Uh, and and uh, uh, not only do they draw better than I do, they're, they're way more complete when they do their genetic histories uh, or their family histories than, than, uh, than, than, than I am. Uh, and it's because I know I can, I can, uh, I can rely on them to do that. Um, it, it obviously points to uh, specific uh, modes of inheritance, if if you identify them, uh, and 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 disease entities that fit those, uh, and uh, along with your uh, along with your 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 your, your clinical picture. So um, uh, history, physical, family history, and um, and and uh, genetic and metabolic testing uh, are, are are the first order of business. And how did the pandemic affect you know part of the visit as you're talking about is the um, the physical assessment part. How has the pandemic affect that? Because telehealth has become such a major part of the pandemic response. And a lot of genetic counseling can be done that way in terms of, as you were mentioning, uh, taking a pedigree with that family history, but physical, that's quite hard to do, you know, in terms of measurements. And as you said, like rotation of the ears, um, what's been part of your response to that? Yeah, so there, there are, um, 
a couple of kinds of telemedicine. Telemedicine with, with, with which um, uh, what I call a, a, a casual physical exam. I can see you sitting there, you're alert, you're, 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 you're not in any acute distress. Um, and and uh, um, I think it's fair to say uh, you have no dysmorphic features. Um, so so you 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 um, uh, you would you would pass first muster uh, in a in a a, a, a quick a quick uh, a telemedicine visit. Um, right, you can't see my ears, but everything. Yeah, that's else, right. right? <laughs> you're, you're you're covered up. You're covered up. So I wasn't going to comment on 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 the, on these on these these strange things coming out of your head. But, um, the the but but there 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 is a, a a much more sophisticated way to do a telemedicine visit. The the more formal version of that, um, which we were doing prior to to COVID, um, which was uh, to bring a patient into a room remote um, with um, an assistant who actually has instruments that you can use. So you can use a USB stethoscope and listen to somebody a thousand miles away um, or, or an, an otoscope and look in their ears. Uh, you know, so, so there, are, there are ways of doing that. And then uh, when, when, those, when, the, when they, you have a high resolution handheld camera, you can also say, okay, zoom it in on the eye and I can see your irises. I can tell whether you have a stellate pattern there or not. Um, uh, so, so um, and, and if it really comes down to it, uh, you know, if you've trained your, your assistant at that remote site, you can say, please measure the palpebral distance for me. Um, so you can do a relatively robust exam um, um, uh, re remotely that way, but it's 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 not what was usual in the in during during the pandemic. That first example was much more um, what 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 we um, what we were uh, encountering. You know, trying to uh, put our finger in the hole in the dike and and, and get through uh, the 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 acute uh, the acute process. I mean, honestly, we only lost about three months worth of face to face time throughout the whole pandemic. So it really wasn't all that bad in that regard. And Dr. Kingsmore, I'd love to have you jump in in terms of other challenges that you've seen facing pediatric departments and really the field in general of what you've noticed the past couple of years. Well, in response to COVID, the main thing has been that uh, one week we're wearing masks and the next week we're not. And uh, one week we're virtual and one week we're not. And um, it's been an incredibly tough period to um, sort of lead a research institute, you know, innovation and creativity happens often in those magical spark moments where you encounter a colleague and you have your aha moment. And uh, Zoom has to be the enemy of creativity, you know. Um, so that's been a huge shift. Um, how do we measure productivity and creativity? How do we maintain morale? Uh, these are huge challenges for our field. And I don't know that anybody has really great answers. You know, I think we're struggling to, to do the best we can, but I do think probably the world has taken a major hit in terms of research productivity and creativity as a result of uh, the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's a good point and just, the impact not only just on direct patient care, but on a larger scale, like research projects and parts that some can be done virtually from home, but just that collaborative nature and coming up with ideas and that is more likely to spark in, in person. And when you're having those water cooler moments and things that you're not going to have through Zoom. Um, one of the other questions I had for today is 
looking at the latest technical advancements in the pediatric space, what have you noticed in the past few years that has really shifted either, you know, this specialty or things that you have seen maybe coming up on the horizon? Dr. Vakley, did you want to start out? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll start out with right, right, and, and, and take us right to where Stephen is now, because, you know, he is the cutting edge and, and, I, and, and, and he should, he should, uh, he should address that. Um, I, I, I would say that, that um, we've, we've had um, really two major um, revolutions, if you will, in, in, in genetic testing in the last 20 years. The first which was the last 10 to 20 years, was the mass spectrometer. And, and, and that was very, very straightforward um, 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 metabolite analysis. We went from having to order one test at a time uh, to being able to, to, to look at a lot of things at, uh, uh, at the same time. And, and the more sophisticated the technology, the more things you could, you could pick up. Um, and, and as that manifested, um, it, both in the clinical uh, setting uh, and, and newborn screening, it, it really brought us um, patients uh, who, who were diagnosed um, um, fairly definitively, definitively for the most part, um, earlier than we might otherwise have, um, and allowed us um, uh, more more um, uh, sophisticated ways of following our therapy. So, so that that was that was the twenty to ten years ago. Starting about ten years ago, we we moved from the era of of pick a test uh, on the molecular side uh, to first bundling things in packages, but really, I mean, let's just jump straight to exome because that's, 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 that's the, the, the logical place to talk now, um, which is to say, instead of, of um, uh, having to pick a test, you could um, identify a need and now the test was there that 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 covered that need, regardless of it was um, uh, well what what the need was, and and it was and it was relatively inexpensive, um, regardless of what uh, uh, some some of uh, our, our our insurance colleagues would would have you believe. Um, uh, anytime I talk to a, a um, uh, an insurer about not covering an exome, my my standard response is, what about better care at lower cost? Don't you understand? Um, and and um, and 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 so um, the the idea that that I could look at a patient and phenotype them, come up with a a, a, a physical uh, map, if you will, that said I think they have a syndrome. Well, we now know that syndromes are are heterogeneous. There's 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 allelic and there's locus heterogeneity, and the only way we know that is by looking. Um, and and uh, and 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 the 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 harder you look, the harder you the the, the more you find. Um, the other thing we know that also a lot of the variability in diseases that we've we've identified in the past is because some of those patients have had two things. Half of our patients have to, not half, I'm sorry, 5%, take a zero off, um, have two things. Um, and, and that explains the, the, the heterogeneity to, in, in those individuals. Um, so the, 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 the leap from that first evaluation to going to whatever the latest, greatest definitive test is, in genetics has has compressed almost to zero. I mean, our our, our testing paradigm uh, in, in in Pittsburgh is 
if you think you know what it is, you can go ahead and order a specific test, or if it's a panel that covers the disease as well that you think, that's fine, go ahead and do it. But if you don't, or you thought you did and you got it wrong, no second chance, you go right to an exome. Um, and I think that 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 the the the, the going going forward, uh, that's going to be a genome um, and, and, and as opposed to an exome. It's just the only thing that makes sense. So at some point, I would imagine we're just not going to have gene panels anymore. It's just going to move to exome and then maybe eventually whole genome. Do you see that happening in the near future? Or are we still a ways away from that? Stephen, you got it. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing genomes for six years. We don't really do anything else. Uh, so we're big believers in the power of a genome. Uh, I don't really see a reason not to do a genome in an individual. Um, I think the other tests are transients. Um, they were instituted initially because people were afraid of the data load. Um, and it was more costly and both of those have gone away. So um, I think we still have these legacy tests that are still frequently ordered, um, but genomes are where the action is. The genome is more complete. Uh, it's the most complete test currently. It covers about 90% of the genome. It replaces uh, a battery of things that we used to do. So it covers both the nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome. Uh, it covers structural and copy number variants as well as nucleotide variants. So it's basically a one-stop shop. There are some disorders it doesn't cover, uh, but even in those disorders, you, you can impute. So even for say methylation disorders, you can get information from the genome, which makes, makes a suggestion to help you. Uh, so genomes are written. Now the biggest advance to me is that we now no longer take a month to return a result. We can do it in a day. Uh, we just published a paper in New England Journal. It was a letter, really. Staggering case, 13 and a half hours from receipt of a blood sample to delivery of a diagnosis, and 37 hours from symptom onset to putting them on uh, a life-saving medication uh, in a disorder that was so rapidly progressive that even had we waited three, four, five days, that child would have been neurologically devastated. So that's the future to me is instant genomes. They're either pre-done or else they're immediately done. Um, and then merging that with AI, that's the other huge piece. A genome without artificial intelligence and big data handling capabilities doesn't really work. So that's the other thing that we have been talking about for decades is big data. And it's happening now in pediatrics, where we are able to realistically look across the genome in real time and use that to drive patient management. It's exceptionally exciting. It's rewriting um, the, the, the book of what's the standard of care in several pediatric subspecialties. And so different because we hear like the diagnostic odyssey is a term that's used a lot, especially in pediatric cases where you have someone that, you know, maybe has a diagnosis, but then gets re-diagnosed with something else as more symptoms come up, more information's available. But, you know, you're talking about this case where in thir 13 and a half hours, you, you have a result. And, you know, you said like 30 something hours from first symptoms to having a diagnosis. 
that is mind-blowingly different than what we've seen for the diagnostic odyssey of being years long. You're talking about hours long. So that's just like mind-blowing to see that that is where we are today. And that, as you're saying, like becoming more of a standard of care with that. Do you have most patients doing trio testing with genome or is it really just starting with patients? Like what's, what's the population that you see in terms of samples being run? It's an interesting question. Um, in the United States, we have a law that protects privacy uh, related to genome information called GINA, the Genetic Anti-Discrimination Act. Unfortunately, that doesn't apply uh, to all of our population. Here in San Diego, we're a big naval facility and a big Marine Corps facility, and we have to caution parents if they are employed by the Navy or the Marines, you're not covered by GINA. So we may not want to decode your genome because it could have implications for your career. So that's a setting where, you know, you need to be thoughtful and give appropriate genetic counseling. Uh, but by and large, if we can do a trio test, that's a faster test and it's a more definitive test. Uh, what we have become aware of much to our surprise is that the majority of diagnoses of genetic diseases are de novo variants. We've rewritten the textbook. We used to think the burden of disease was overwhelmingly recessive. Well, it's not. It's just we didn't pick them up before. Uh, you know, the, really the only way to know whether something is de novo or not is to have the parent genome or the parent sequence at that locus. Well, if you're gonna just decode that locus or that variant, You've got to order primers and so on, and that delays turnaround time by, you know, three, four, five days. So really, if we can, uh, and if it's safe to do so, it's really smart to get mom and dad. The other issue, though, is that we have fragmented families very often, and um, so we may have mom, we may not know who dad is, um, or dad may not be available. So there's these practicalities. I mean, a duo doesn't help you really. So it's, it's singleton or trio. Is there ever cases where you have, say, the patient has a full sibling? Would you look at their genome to give any extra information, especially in cases where one of the biological parents sample isn't available or it doesn't make sense to do for, you know, GINA reasons, as you pointed out with military, either if that sibling is healthy to kind of rule out certain variants, or if that sibling is also a patient and having possibly the same disorder. Do you see that in conjunction with each other or is it treated separately? There are some families with multiple affecteds for sure. Um, and generally this happens more as a reflex. We diagnose somebody in the family. We are doing our pedigree analysis as Jerry spoke about and uh, we realize we want to screen the family uh, and, and make sure that there is not another affected. Uh, so that's generally how it happens rather than having another affected sibling on the front end. We're mainly dealing with uh, babies and uh, children in intensive care units. And again, right now with COVID, we're not going to see that sibling. Um, <laughs> they're allowed. Uh, kind of one parent uh, to, to be visiting at a time. So um, 
for this acute setting in general, no, that's not the case. And how about when we look at, you know, talking about switching over to leaving gene panels behind and really switching to either whole exome or whole genome sequencing, do we see this possibly replacing newborn screening? I mean, you know, maybe we should give a little background information. Dr. Buckley, I don't know if you can speak to what newborn screening is, it differs by state, but maybe what the core is for, for the US before we jump into what could happen in the future. Yeah, new, newborn screening is, is, is traditionally uh, um, a, a, a functional test. Uh, hemoglobin, uh, G6PD, enzyme analysis, biotinidase, uh, 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 galactosemia, uh, your, your transferase, um, or metabolites uh, the ma as, as, as picked up on the mass spec. And there's a, there, there are other now conditions being added, uh, uh, LSDs that are enzyme, enzyme assays, uh, extra X-linked adrenaleukodystrophy, which is a metabolite assay, um, uh, severe combined immune deficiency, a, uh, uh, the first uh, direct molecular test. So it's, it's expanding. Um, and, and there is a, a, a federal panel that's empowered within HRSA uh, that, 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 that sort of ruminates on, on, on these diseases and, and, and decides which ones are ready to be added to the national uh, newborn screening um, uh, sensorium, if you will. Uh, there is no national um, screening um, mandate, but there is a recommended uniform screening panel, the RUSP. And then each state is allowed to, to pick and choose from that RUSP and do their own. But for the most part across the, the United States, uh, we're, we're pretty close to everybody doing what's on the RUSP. Um, now that, that amounts to, depending on how you count them, um, 36 primary diseases and another dozen or two uh, secondary ones that are identified because you're looking for something else and you get the other ones as a, as, as a result. Now that's a far cry from the however many thousand genetic diseases you believe there are, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000, I don't know. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and the question then becomes, what is reasonable to know and when? I find uh, that there is um, a, 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 lot of, a lot of merit in the idea of screening for something that's going to impact a baby in their first year of life when they're born. Because when are you going to impact, uh, when, when are you going to, to be able to do something about that? Probably if you start early. Um, if it's something that's going to be developing when they're 10 and there's no problems between now and then, would you want to pick that up as a newborn? Well, I wouldn't, but I, you know, I, I, that, that, I, I think that the, you, you could, you could, you make this argument for every every increment of five years across the life. So rather than newborn screening in genetics as the future, I like to refer to as age appropriate screening. Um, and the nice thing about genome data, for example, is that genome data doesn't change. Um, if 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 that if if we were to do uh, a whole genome on everybody. Hold your, hold, your, hold your technological gasps there. Um, uh, the, 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 that, that, that all we did was pull out the relevant newborn disorders. Maybe they're even used as, as follow-up for standard newborn screening to, to, to confirm the result, but you know, mostly they're gonna be used for their own purposes. Um, and you say there's, there's 200, there's 300, there's 700, whatever the number is, of diseases that impact uh, the a, a, an individual in the in in the in the first uh, first year or two of life, and and you give a readout on those. 
And then you put it back in the system. And here's where the EMR becomes critical. You gotta be able to go back in and query it again. So now, just like when you go into the pediatrician's office and they, and they look at, the, at you at one year of age and they're doing their Denver developmental assessment and they're looking at it and they say, oh yes, you're due for your hemoglobin analysis to see whether or not you've got anemia and you're due for your shot. And let's check your next year's worth of genetic diseases that we wanna know about. Out it comes. Um, and, 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 and that's the, that's the power of, 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 a, of, a, of a data source that you can go back to and using it in, a, in a, um, uh, an, an age appropriate fashion rather than a one size um, fits all, uh, let's, let's just tell everybody what's wrong when you're a newborn and, and, uh, and, and now you know where, where, where our, 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 our fates are all written for us. I think that's a, a fantastic idea because you can cover more conditions that are gonna affect in the infantile period. So of however many conditions that is that we can identify through the genome. And then as you're saying, as time goes on, checking back in and the genome doesn't change. We're born with the genome we die with. So looking at those certain points and saying, okay, now there are 10, as you said, now let's look for more conditions that would affect childhood. And then, you know, as you get older, maybe in, in your late thirties, forties, looking for different hereditary cancer syndromes. I mean, this could impact you know, we're, we're talking about pediatrics today because that's what we're focused on, but really scoping out a little bit more, this would affect area, every area of genetics. And even if you think about, you go to a psychiatrist, you're looking for what medications may work well with you. Say, well, let's bring up your genome and see what variants you have in certain genes that may predispose to be, uh, have a more favorable outcome to certain medications. So I can see this just, you know, really projecting out past the, um, the pediatric like area with that. I can see you've really thought all of this through. And, and, that, and that really brings you to the, 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 the more broad topic of precision medicine. Um, I, I, I like to argue that, that, that genetics is precision medicine. Um, that's what the genome is. Uh, we're telling you exactly what, what, you, what you've got. And, and um, as soon as we understand what it means, we'll tell you that too. And, and that's gonna be the, 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 the leaps and bounds uh, that 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 uh, that that have to be made, but um, there's 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 no reason to be practicing pediatrics. There's no reason to be practicing medicine. There's no reason to be practicing ticket specialty cardiology the way we practiced it 40 years ago. Um, we we should be so far beyond that. Um, and and it and it and it all and it all starts with a relatively inexpensive test that you need it back in a day. I mean, what's not to like there? I think the other thing that would be pushback is who's going to pay for this. Newborn screening is relatively inexpensive. And I mean, we've, we've had that in place for a long time. It's changed over the years, but we've had that in place for a long time, like starting with PKU and everything. But we you know when you are jumping to genome, if you're looking at that being done for all newborns, just like newborn screening, you know, I think that that would be the, the pushback for people more on the insurance side of, is that insurance paying for that? Is the government paying for that? You know, where's that coming from because insurance companies only are looking at the short term. They're not really looking at the long term because if we look at someone's life, is this worth doing? Yes, because all of all these areas where you're going to be using the data, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Dr. Kingsmore. I love stories. So let me give you a little story. Uh, this is the story of Fitz. So Fitz lives on Coronado Island uh, with his mom and dad, which is where I live uh, in San Diego. 
So two years ago, Fitz was born and he had a positive newborn screening test for SCID, severe combined immune deficiency. Now that newborn screening test is a general test. There are a number of conditions that trigger positivity. So at four days of age, his parents were contacted and he was brought back into Ready Children's Hospital. We decoded his genome, it took 92 hours. And we found out he had Artemis skid. Now normally uh, with this disorder, you die at about one year of age of infection. Instead, what happened with Fitz was he was transferred to UCSF where he became 007. He became the seventh patient to receive gene therapy, ex vivo gene therapy, to replace his broken Artemis gene. He never had an infection, right? So he was born with a positive newborn screening test. He had a lethal genetic condition, and he never in his life experienced a single infectious episode, and he no longer has that disease. That's the future, right? Um, that's what we want to make available for every genetic disease. And this is really now within reach. This is not science fiction. There's a drug called Millicent. And Millicent is a genetic therapy made for Mila. So this was a drug made for a specific patient with a specific genetic disease. And it took only a year to go from concept to Mila getting her drug. That's the future for us. We need to shift our thinking though, so that we're not thinking about disorders, we're thinking about variants. The public all knows what a variant is now, right? So we need to be thinking about newborn screening for variants because genomes pick up variants, they're agnostic to disorders, and genetic therapies are agnostic to disorders. They also treat variants. So that's this new magical world that we're gonna be in over the next decade is what's the variant pool in your genome? Is there anything there that we need to target? And then what's the right agent to target it with? Both platforms, a genome platform for discovery and a genetic therapy platform to fix it. And that genetic therapy that you're talking about with that patient, was that CRISPR-based or what was the technology behind the genetic therapy? CRISPR is not quite there yet, hugely promising, but very new. This is allele-specific oligonucleotides. They're what right now are transforming the world. You know, you take a disorder like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, tragic disease, huge burden, fairly frequent in the population. Well, we now have genetic therapies, four of them directed against different variants within the dystrophin gene. Um, the bottleneck now is it's not on the newborn screen. This is another reason why we need to switch from testing for disorders to testing for variants and using genomes so that we could immediately at birth know, hey, you are going to develop Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We're not gonna wait until you're symptomatic. We're gonna get you on therapy immediately. And, and the Karen, other... just to bounce back to your to your original question for, for, for a second, who, who, who pays for this? The question is not who pays for this. Remember, my original 
uh, 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 challenge to, to insurers is what about better care at lower cost? Don't you understand? Because what Stephen just described saved those insurers probably millions of dollars um, in, in, in hospital fees and, and, and therapies. If you get in, you identify a disease uh, uh, correctly, quickly, and you treat it right, you, 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 you save money. Um, and and the, 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 the cost of the testing in the end is, is almost insignificant. Um, Stephen and I are involved in a, in a study right now, a national study on looking at, at um, uh, rapid turnaround uh, whole genome sequencing in, in the NICU setting and its impact on, on not just uh, how effective it is. Uh, Stephen's proved, proven a number of times now that it's very, very effective. But, but what's the impact on the outcome of the babies as well as the, the uh, medical economic impact? Um, and and uh, uh, we're, just, we're just closing in now on our, on our uh, 400th baby um, in that study. Uh, at which point we'll be closing the, 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 uh, the, the formal enrollment in the study. Hopefully we'll keep the sequencing going, but, but we'll close the formal enrollment and we'll, and we'll, and we'll see what the impact on, 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 the, on the cost of, of treating those babies was in the first year of life. We'll be able to go back to historically for, for, for matched controls for the same conditions. Um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll have then um, an, an unequivocal read on how this is not just improving lives, but improving healthcare. Um, and and uh, I, I'm, you know, U, U, UPMC is, 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 is an academic medical center, but it's also a health plan. And if I don't take care of my health plan, they're not gonna take care of me. So I want to give, be able to give them um, the, 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 the best available therapy at the lowest possible price. And that's what this ends up being. I think that's very well said and that insurance companies just need to catch up with that because as you said, even within a few years, hospital visits and all of the costs associated with a condition and taking care of that condition, even when you factor in parents needing to possibly take time off from work and not being able to make as much as they were, like there's just so many downstream, downstream effects of that. Um, so I think that's that's a really good point and just shedding more light on why this is already worth doing because sometimes the conversation is when is it worth doing when will we get that return on investment and you're like it's already here there that's not really a valid question anymore that it's more about showing that that is true and and providing that for insurance companies um i think the other aspect is that i think about when looking at taking this genome data is that with variant curation, that's something that's ongoing. Our genome doesn't change, but our understanding of the variants and the impact on our health, that does change over time. If someone has their genome done and you know, say that they were diagnosed, they found what they were looking for, um, should they revisit that genome certain increments of time to see if there's any updates in terms of other conditions or for those that maybe weren't diagnosed and checking back in? Dr. Kingsmore, do you have a is there a recommendation for that time period of if it's six months, a year, a couple of years to check back in with the data? This is an evolving field, Kira. Um, most of our energy, 99% of our energy is focused on how do we end the diagnostic odyssey for a child? It's getting that first genome test. Um, that's where all of our energy is focused. But you're right, we're going to move into an era 
where we've overcome that hurdle and it's now somewhat standard of care for you to get a genome type test uh, early in symptomatology. And then the question will be exactly what Jerry was talking about, this idea of staged unveiling of the genome, because the genome is a very rich uh, information source of all kinds of information that some individuals will want to have knowledge of, others won't. Uh, and so certainly when you have a negative genome and you still have symptomatology and, and your physician is saying, I still think this is a genetic disorder. And we often see this, you know, they have a metabolic anomaly or they have symptomatology that's highly suggestive of a genetic disease and then a negative genome. Um, we frequently have clinicians say, would you reanalyze the genome for me? The same is true as symptomatology changes. The disease progresses. There are new clinical features. It means we're going to look at a different set of disorders because always when we interpret genomes, it's phenotype driven. So when the phenotype changes, you probably are going to be looking for a different set of candidates when you inspect the genome. So that's happening more and more. I think we don't exactly know how frequently that should be done, but maybe that's uh, once a year. Um, it's going to vary. Um, and obviously it's gonna be driven by the clinician and their tenacity. Um, so there's an awful lot to fill in there in terms of guidelines and the evidence that supports those guidelines for reanalysis. Yeah, Kara, I can give you another example. Uh, you know, we talked about the NICU project that uh, Steve and I are involved in. Um, but 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 fast forward 50 years, um, uh, I, 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 I got three very rapid, you know, pediatric genetics isn't pediatrics, right? We're not an age-limited specialty. We're our own, and we see adults. Um, so periodically you get, uh, and, and, and in our system, we're the only geneticists, so, so we see adults. Um, and, and, and periodically I'll get a, a, an SOS from an adult provider, in a, usually in an intensive care setting. We have no idea what's going on. Can you help? Um, and, and it's hard because all of our resources are over at our children's hospitals. So how do we do this? Well, I, 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 took, I got three phone calls in a very, very short order from our, our, our adult intensive care units uh, with, with essentially the same, the same scenario. Neuromuscular disease, unexpected clinical findings, you know, uh, um, uh, a, 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 um, uh, some, some, a smattering of other things, nothing just added up. Um, and, you know, can you help us out? Well, I said, this is going to take me forever to sort out with my usual fashion. I'm just going to do whole genome sequencing. So I did three whole genome sequences on three patients in three different adult ICUs and got answers on all of them. Wow. Not, not just one answer. Every, all three of those patients had at least two problems and one had a third, one of which was congenital, by the way. Um, uh, she, 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 she had, she had uh, arthrogryposis and now we know why. Um, so what about better care at lower cost? Don't you understand? You know, it's, it's, I can't tell you how many hundreds of thousands of dollars those patients racked up in those intensive care costs because they were getting MRIs and CT scans and EEGs and LPs and whatever other initials you want to throw in there. Um, and all they needed was somebody to, 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 to stop and say, wait, there's a, there's a better way to do this. And if they had had that data 
from earlier in life, maybe that also could have been prevented. Not only right. like would they have gotten an answer quicker of going to the ER, ER and like presenting themselves there, but saying, okay, well, we've identified you may have issues in the future with these symptoms. Let's get you on a preventative track so that all of that could possibly be avoided from that. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I, I think it is powerful to hear direct examples where we can say, this is how much they've racked up in terms of you know being in the ER and as you said, MRIs, everything else that they're doing in terms of testing and then saying, oh, well, this could, could have been the alternative and saved this much money, but also just you know the pain of, of the symptoms being experienced and you know all the other effects with that. Um, I think one of the other questions with this is if we're you know coming from the pediatric perspective, um, Dr. Vakley, when you have a patient coming in and you're going down that diagnostic odyssey and kind of figuring out, okay, what disorder should I be thinking of? What is on the top of my list in terms of differential diagnoses? Do you ever consult with the carrier screening that may have been done during that child's pregnancy or before their pregnancy for their parents? Is that part of the workup at all, or does that not come up as much because you're in a pediatric setting and not prenatal? <laughs> it if, 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 if there's prenatal testing done, our, our counselors are, are, are compulsive and they'll, 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 they'll ask about it and they'll, and they'll have those results. So yes, we'll, we'll, we'll take that, we'll take that into account. Um, um, but, but it's, it's, um, um, it, it the, 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 direction, um, from, from that initial evaluation to the first tier testing, um, and then, I'm just going to call it next tier because I don't think we need multiple tiers anymore. Um, the, the 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 direction in that um, from from the phenotype I think is still important. Um, uh, I, I I tell our trainees I said there are two ways to order an exome. One is I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to order an exome. The other is here's what I think is happening. Let's see if we can find it in the exome. Um, and I would much rather they be the, set, the, the, the latter than the former, although far too often I'm the former. Um, I, 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 you know, it's just the, the phenotypes are so, are so um, hard to, to nail down anymore that, that uh, uh, unless, you're, unless you're really drilling into something that looks like Marfan syndrome to say, I think I'm going to do a connective tissue panel is almost like, just do the genome, would you? Um, and, and be done with it. Um, but if it... it, it where, where, where um, intelligence cannot be um, replaced by artificial intelligence is, is, is at the level of um, suspicion. It's, it's bringing that patient to genetic evaluation and genetic testing in the first place. Um, it's, it's being able um, to uh, then say, Look, this—you know—we've met all our criteria. Whole genome is the way we're going to where we're going to go here, um, and 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 then and then um, we're 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 still at a at a at a stage where where um, um, I think the artificial intelligence needs babysitting. You know, the 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 it, it's where where we 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 get results out from our 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 analysis. Um, that 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 still need a person 
to look at it. Um, and I'd, I'd love to hear Stephen comment on this. I think that's going to get better over time. Yeah, you know, it, it's 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 the it's the classic machine learning paradigm. The more you do, the better you get, uh, and 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 that's going to happen. Um, uh, but I, but I hope it doesn't mean the end of geneticists. I, I, I'd like a job in ten years, uh, Stephen. So don't put me out of business completely. <laughs> If anything, Jerry, uh, AI empowers geneticists. If you don't take a good history and do a fabulous physical exam, your AI is worthless. Uh, and you know, part of the enemy is then, well, we don't actually put that all in the EHR because the EHR is a billing engine. But you know, provided we get the actual positive and negative findings adequately dis put into the into the medical record then it does allow you to actually have you know that 6100 diseases in play uh, and so it's just a magical tool for 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 the experienced geneticist to be able to harness you know an accessory brain to help you solve the trickiest of presentations um, and I think it's going to be a delightful, a delightful uh, exercise where you're going to go, well, darn it, I should have had that one, you know, what, what, what you know, um, and you know, the thing is that these darn diseases trick us because they don't play by the textbooks, right? They present like something else. And after the fact, we're scratching our head and going, wow, well, that's an unusual phenotype for this disorder. Um, it's just going to be so much fun, Jerry. Uh, and, you know, you're going to be moving from, just like you said at the very start, moving from a descriptive practice to an incredibly therapeutic practice mm -hmm. where your focus is not so much on being a diagnostician. It's being a curative physician. You know, we get to beat the surgeons for the first time because we can cure disease, you know. We're going to fix the genetics uh, in our patients. We're going to get them before they have progression of their disorder. And we're going to be able to give effective curative therapies. That's going to be so rewarding, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think, you know, we, we started this conversation as what's changing in pediatric genetics. And, 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 and we focused a lot on diagnostics because that's where we are right now. But, but, but Stephen's right. Therapeutics is, 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 the, is the, the direct descendant of diagnostics. If you don't know what you're treating, you can't treat it. But once you do, everything is in play. And, and, and um, the technologies for, for identifying um, novel therapies for developing them. And I hope the regulatory paths uh, uh, to, to, to move them into, into patients are, are evolving at, 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 at breakneck speed. That, um, you know, when, 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 our, when, our, when a genetic consult 30 years ago was, here's what I think you have, I'm sorry, goodbye. Um, to here's what I think you have, here's what, how we're going to prove it. And then here's what we're going to do to fix it. Um, it, it's a fundamentally different discipline than it was 30 years ago. It, it, I, I always get myself in trouble because I'll, 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 whoever I'm talking to, my, 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 my favorite subspecialist, I'll, I'll say, you know, come on, you cardiologist, you're a nephrologist or whatever. You know, 10 years ago, if you just decided to 
drop out of society, go live on a Caribbean island for 10 years, and now you wanted to come back, your discipline would be primarily the same, right? It would be fundamentally unchanged. There might be a few new drugs. There aren't any new diseases. Uh, if they are, they're genetic, uh, and, and, and we will tell you about them. Uh, uh, you know, you'd be just fine. That's not true in genetics. Genetics has reinvented itself every five years for as long as I've been in this business. And, and, um, uh, and it's not going to change any time in the, in, the, in, in the near future. There isn't any discipline where the timeline between basic science, translational or clinical research, and routine clinical practice is as short as it is in, 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 in genetics. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's incredibly rewarding. Um, and and uh, uh, my only frustration is we aren't getting that message effectively out to our, our medical students. You know, they're, they're still going into surgery and cardiology and nephrology and not genetics. And I'm thinking, why? Why would you not want to do this? This is so interesting um, uh, and so rewarding. And, and uh, I, I think we'll get there. I, I think in 20 years, we won't have a shortage of geneticists. Uh, uh, I, I, think, I think it will, it will be... Um, uh, a, 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 a flagship uh, uh, discipline that, that is, is um, uh, yeah, you know, what, what, are you going to go into pediatrics? You're going to go into internal medicine? You're going to go into genetics? You know, it's just going to be in that same breath uh, in, in, our, in our medical school students. Yeah, I, because genetics is at the basis of everything. So when you look at it from that perspective, it all changes because as you said, we do need more geneticists and we need more genetic counselors and just people in this field in general. Um, and I think, you know, not necessarily raising awareness, but I think showing how interesting it can be and how much you can impact people's lives by doing this work and, and preventing a lot of a lot of heart heartbreak as well. Um, I do want to have time for us to answer some listener and viewer questions here. Um, the first one is a little bit lengthy, but I'll repeat the question at the end. Um, this is from an anonymous attendee. I remember seeing a press release about uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield California becoming the first healthcare plan to cover rapid genome sequencing based on the work by Dr. Kingsmore and colleagues on Project Baby Bear. Despite the promising results from the research project and others, many insurers still classify genome sequencing as not medically necessary. How can we help insurance companies understand that doing genome is more cost-effective than sequential testing panel exome microarray? What kind of studies need to be done? I know we talked about this a little bit, but is there any like, you know, top bullet points that you would say for what we need to convey to insurance companies? Dr. Vockley, did you want to start out? I, I yes. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try not to be too, too, um, Disgruntled, I think insurance companies are being purposefully um, uh, 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 obtuse here. They not only could still could, uh, uh, list whole genome as, as, as research, but many of them list whole exome as research and genetic testing in general. You know, it's this whole thing about if it's FDA approved or not. Is it an FDA approved test? If it's not, technically it's research. It's a lab, lab, lab developed tests. Um, and, and, um, uh, it's, 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 it's going to take, um, it's going to take studies like this NICU study that we talked about, the baby bear study. It's going to take, uh, studies that, 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 um, we as scientists haven't really been very good about doing over the years. That is showing the economic impact 
of, of, of what we're doing on, on, on uh, the healthcare system, as opposed to the medical or the social um, uh, in, impact, which is where we've always had our, 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 our main, our main uh, focus. Um, so that's what it's, it, it's, it, it's education, um, but, but it's, it's, it's education, you know, maybe with, 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 with heavy books attached to planks, swinging them at heads, because I don't know how, how, how else to, to, to get the, to get the, 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 the people to, to, to listen. Stephen, you can be more measured than I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the cup is half full or the cup is half empty. You know, here's the tragedy. This technology was developed in the United States. So rapid genome sequencing for inpatients. Uh, it's now national policy in England and Wales and Australia. Those are, that's national policy. It's standard of care. Here in the US, it's not. Why not? Uh, the, the evidence is overwhelming. There are 24 published clinical studies. However, the news is good. So Blue Cross Blue Shield California was the first. Then Blue Cross Blue Shield nationally endorsed that. And now that's working its way across each state's Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. However, if you're in Hospital X, you still need to renegotiate your Blue Cross Blue Shield um, individual contract. So it takes, sadly, years, even when you do have a policy. Now, Medicaid is looking really much better. So in California, Baby Bear, what was Baby Bear? The legislature gave us $2 million and said, show us, okay? You say it costs money or it saves money and it improves outcomes, show us. So we did a Medicaid pilot in five hospitals and we had about 40% of our enrollees got a diagnosis across five hospitals some of whom had never ordered an inpatient genome before, and it saved $20,000 per patient. So we took that back to the legislature, and now it's law. The governor has now signed that Medi-Cal, that's California Medicaid, rapid genomes for inpatient babies in intensive care units is now law. Now that still has to go through the stuff that says, well, will that be covered by the DRG? which makes no sense, or will that be a carve-out payment? So we still get that little hiccup to take care of. Um, however, in the meantime, baby deer was happening in Michigan. Similar design. Could we prove out for Medicaid in Michigan that this actually was ready for prime time? Well, Michigan went ahead and made a policy. So effective, I believe it's September 1st, uh, Michigan will be the first state to actually have a policy that says Medicaid will pay for genomes in our state of infants in intensive care units. So I think the tide is coming in. I don't think you can stop it. I think it's some individual insurers are gonna be leaders and some are gonna be laggards, but it's gonna start very quickly to become a reason why you might select one plan over another, you know? What, isn't it wonderful that our poorest uh, citizens who are dependent on Medicaid are going to be first in line? Well, I guess Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, beneficiaries were the first, but now Medicaid is going to be second. So I'm super pumped. Um, the issue now, though, is, wow, we got to train this workforce. 
we don't have very many Jerry Vockleys in, in the US, okay? So how That's do the we next thing we got to start cloning him, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, yes. we got we had to clone Stephen too, though, because we got somebody to run all those genomes, right? I mean, it is just it, like it is make little armies of you guys so we can cover all of this. <laughs> it's, an, it's an infrastructure thing, and 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 uh, uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear you're you're more you're more um, uh, uh, optimistic, Stephen, because you know we still we still battle, uh, and, and that now I'm I'm talking you know largely in the outpatient setting. We 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 battle. Exome for exome, and 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 every time we 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 find a way around one set of of uh, of, of restrictions, uh, they 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 reinterpret something to make it uh, make it uh, uh, harder yet to 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 do. So so I'm still a little a little on the on on the on the 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 the, the gnarly side here, and and uh, and don't 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 mind playing the, the the bad guy when it comes to you know hitting the hitting the insurers over the head. We have to partner. I I I work with my uh, UPMC health plan. I I work with them, and 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 we we have a very good relationship. Um, and 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 that's what we need to do. Uh, I I've I've had um, health plans call me up about new drugs. And say, tell us about this new drug. We'd like to know whether we're going to put it on our formulary or not. Uh, that's proactive. That's what we need to be doing with testing. Um, and and um, um, I, I, I hope Stephen's right. I, I I do see a tide coming in. I, I just don't I just don't know if it's a if it's a, a tsunami or or, mm -hmm. or 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 if it's a trickle and 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 what the riptide back is going to be like. We'll find out. Yeah, certainly happening, but we want it to be happening faster rather than slower Instantly, there. instantly. <laughs> instantly, there we go, in a minute. Um, and then another question kind of along these lines from Anne is, do you have any advice for new genetics providers on keeping up with all the rapid changes in the field? We've talked about how exciting it is for you know us being in the field, but also for patients to have so many new therapies coming out, different ways to diagnose, like all of this is just you know rapidly changing, but that also makes it challenging to keep up with. Um, do either of you have any advice for how to keep up with everything? Well, I'll, I'll maybe tackle it first. Um, we are committing basically a third of our energy to education because we recognize that once the reimbursement issue is solved, once the clinical utility question is resolved, that's the next bottleneck is physician unpreparedness. And it's not so much our medical geneticist colleagues, it's the rest of medicine. Because many, many of these disorders are not traditional medical genetics patients. They have a liver problem, a heart problem, a kidney problem, a neurologic problem. And so how do we educate the workforce and upskill them in this new science? We figure that the way to do this is 20 minute segments which are case-based learning. So if you go to radiogenomics.org and click on the button that says education, there's about five different streams there. And it's exactly that, it's case-based learning. Uh, we recognize that going forward, that uh, needs to be an increasing emphasis is practical upskilling of uh, the, the healthcare force. It's not just MDs, it's also our genetic counselors, it's also our nurses, uh, social workers, but primarily right now the focus in particular is on neonatologists and intensivists and hospitalists 
who are the guys who are encountering this for the first time. It's not being taught yet in their residency and fellowship programs. And, and I have a couple of additional things to add to that. Uh, one is we've already talked a little bit about, about, about AI. One of the, um, one of the advantages of, 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 of AI is, is, is that it, it, it takes a little bit of the onus off of you to be able to remember lists. Right. I, I used to hate in residency when, when the attending looked at me and said, well, Dr. Vockley, what are the 37 things that can cause spots right here? You know, so you know, even if you got the 34, you were always wrong. My, you know, there were always three short. So I don't like those kinds of uh, learning opportunities. I would much rather um, be able to say, you got a spot right here um, and, and, and let the AI identify the 37 things and now my job is to is to fill in the information to help sort that out a, a little bit further. And now you get it down to just a small number. And 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 uh, and 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 I and I know uh, that that that, that Stephen's got a got a a, a a a program that's 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 starting to work to do this. But it pops out all of the all of the appropriate literature for you. Just just gives you a real quick overview of it. And now you've got, uh, you know, it's sort of instant learning. It's almost force-fed learning, but it's learning in the context of a patient, which I think is what we all do best. Um, I, 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 can, I, can tell you, I can tell you patients that, I've, that I saw 30 years ago. Can I tell you articles that I read 30 years ago? Of course not. Um, you know, those are gone, but this patients, the stories are, 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 are there. The other thing that I, I, I think we need to rely on are our professional societies. Um, I, I think our, our, our ACMG, our NSGC, the ASHG meetings have all be, uh, are, are all really very valuable um, in, 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 in that regard. Um, and you, know, you can't go to everything all of the time. It's actually been one of the, uh, the benefits of, the, of the, 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 the pandemic is that you've been able to get to a lot of these things virtually. And, and, and so we're gonna to have to figure out how to keep doing that. The live streaming uh, that, that lets you uh, pop in, uh, you know, while you're eating your lunch or, or, or you're sitting there and uh, uh, at, at the end of the day and, and you're just, uh, uh, if you could call watching uh, uh, something on whole genome story vegging, um, uh, uh, whole, whole genome sequencing vegging, you, you know, you're sitting there uh, while, you're, while you're having your, your evening cup of tea and, 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 and uh, uh, getting getting some information and so there, there, there it, it's daunting um, and and but it's but it's by no means um, uh, uh, an undoable and I and I think that I think the the components are are, um, are are more in place now than than they were 30 years ago because we just have so many more resources so many more ways of bringing information to ourselves now yeah I think so I think there's just so much available now, even with, you know, our speaker series here of just bringing guests on so that we can talk about these topics and have these conversations and especially mm -hmm. be answering questions live. I think, you know, all of these aspects, looking at the professional societies and seeing what guidelines they're putting out that is, you know, really good overview of like what the changes are and what is standard of care and, and what's coming up. Um, so I think those are all great resources and ways to think about things. Um, we have so many questions and unfortunately we are running out of time. However, we're going to be capturing your questions and answering those via email. And I see um, Dr. Kingsmore is typing as well. So we're, we're trying to answer all of your questions here. Um, you'll see a feedback link in your browser when this webinar ends. 
and it will also be emailed shortly afterwards. Please take a minute to offer feedback to help us improve our future sessions. We really want to make these as impactful as we can and deliver the education that you're looking for. Um, the email will also include a link to the Phenotip Speaker Series page where you can sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions. You can also go directly to phenotips.com, click the resources tab, and then the speaker series will pop up on the drop-down menu. And all of our installments are on there, so you can watch them and also listen to them there. And mark your calendars for our next webinar. It's going to be on advances in rare disease diagnosis on September 9th. And if you found today's conversation interesting, I think you'd also enjoy the podcast I host called DNA Today. You can search on social media and podcast players to listen and also connect with dnapodcast.com. So wanted to, um, you know, give another shout out to Phenotips, the sponsor for this series. They are passionate about transforming workflows through technology. Their software includes tools for deep phenotyping and phenotyped power genetic analysis, as well as many other tools for genetic workflows. And if you have a challenge that you're trying to solve or you're working towards making your department more efficient, you can speak one-on-one -on -one with an expert by reaching out to hello at phenotips.com. And once again, remember to stay tuned for our webinar on advances in rare diseases diagnosis on September 9th. And thank you so much, Dr. Kingsmore, Dr. Vokley. I really appreciate all of the expertise that you've provided today. And, you know, I'm, it's, it's still ruminating in me of just, you know, the different ideas you have for the way we're going in the future of not just pediatrics, but I think we were able to give a really good scope out of other specialties and how all of this is impacted. And, you know, I think the, the changes, Dr. Vokley, that you talked about in terms of, you know, newborn screening and adapting to that, I think that's definitely going to stay with me of just, you know, hopefully that's where we're moving and it, it makes a lot of sense to me. So thank you both so much for taking the time um, and just the energy to, that you brought on today's webinar. Glad to be here. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I hope everybody has enjoyed this installment. Certainly be tuning back in with us September 9th. You can go to phenotips.com for all the information that we mentioned, including um, the recording for this episode. So um, if you want to look back, listen back to anything, uh, feel free to do that. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you both for coming on.